The whole nation was talking, everyone had an opinion, everyone was looking at this work and everyone was saying, do you reckon that's a, a real fair income portrait or do you reckon that's a caricature? And so the, that very question was leading not just to the court of public opinion, it was leading towards a court of law. Hi, and welcome to Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and today I've got a very special episode for you. It's my conversation with biographer Scott Bevan, and we talk about the life of William Dobell one of Australia's most famous artists of the 20th century. Scott's a journalist, a radio and TV presenter and an author, and I recently reread his book about Dobell called Bill, The Life of William Dobell, which was published in 2014. And I'd forgotten what a great read it was, and I thought I've got to get Scott onto the show so that he can tell you about it and especially tell you about that controversial Archibald win in the 1940s. Now, I've mentioned the Archibald Prize on this podcast a few times before. It's Australia's most famous art prize, for those of you who might not have heard of it before. And today you're going to hear about probably the most controversial Archibald win, when William Dobell was awarded the prize in 1943 with a portrait of his friend and fellow artist Joshua Smith, and how that painting would change the course of Australian art history. But there's actually a lot more to Dobell's life than just that Archibald win. And Scott is the perfect person to tell you about it. He did a huge amount of research, including amazing interviews with leading artists who knew Dobell at the time. People who have since died, like William Dargy, Nora Heysen, Geoffrey Smart and Margaret Ollie. The book's published by Simon & Schuster and it's available through all good booksellers and online and even via Scott's website, which is scottbevan.com.au. And you can also go to talkingwithpainters.com for links as well. William Dobell was born and grew up in Newcastle, as coincidentally did both Scott Bevan and I, which might partly account for our fascination with this extraordinary artist. So we start this conversation with Scott telling me about Dobell's early life at the turn of the 20th century. He was born in 1899 and he was born in Cooks Hill. A lot of people hearing this probably know something about Cooks Hill if they've been to Newcastle because now it's a a beautiful, gentrified, in some areas, bohemian suburb. It's a a much coveted place to live in Newcastle. Uh, As I heard a Sydney sider say, oh, it's just like a little Paddington. (laughs) So there are, where Newcastle's historic workers' cottages and terraces are, it's Cooks Hill. And it has attracted for many years an interesting mix of people. When Dobell was born, It was on the fringe of the city. It was on the fringe of a swamp. It was a working family's area. It was a working class area. And it came with all the rough edges that it um, socially and physically, therefore. Uh, Dobell's father was uh, uh, a, a tradesman and indeed helped to literally build some of the landmarks of Newcastle, the landmarks that young William, young Bill would have seen, such as uh, a church called St Andrew's Church, not far from the gallery in which Sir William Dobell's paintings now hang. So he was the son of a tradesman and he had um, five siblings and he was born 
as he would live. He was the observer, in effect. He was born upstairs in a, a little cottage, and he seemed to spend his whole life on an elevated view, observing. He came into the world that way, born upstairs <laughs> with a big window, and uh, so began the life of William Dobell, the observer from above. And were any of his family artistic? His dad, Robert, was an amateur painter, and Dobell had a painting of, of his father's of a sailing ship, and the only other one that was ever really talked about was of a, a cat. So his dad had done this. And his dad was obviously, and his mum, uh, he, he called himself a mummy's boy. He was indulged by his mother. And he showed from a very early age artistic promise. He claimed he was, he was dull and intellectually dumb, um, but he constantly put himself down, so who would know? Mm. But he always shone as an artist uh, from when he was a, a schoolboy. And so he pursued that. And at home that was accepted. Now, in a working-class home in Newcastle, to be pursuing uh, drawing and art, I mean, that was a bit out of the ordinary. But you were expected to be sensible. You wouldn't engage with the thought of doing that for a a career. You wouldn't see that as your future. But it was a a nice diversion to have. And so, to that end, young William uh, was encouraged to to draw and uh, to pursue his art. Mm. And in Newcastle at the time, were there any galleries or anything like where he could see original works? No, uh, not really. There was a, a, a place down in um, Hunter Street where you could see a mishmash of this and that. Uh, that was a little bit of museum, a little bit of uh, this, a little bit of that culturally, but not really. In fact, James Gleeson, the artist and, and uh, writer and critic, uh, writing about the early years of Dobell, said he had the great misfortune misfortune to be born in a a Newcastle where there was no gallery and no art school. There was a small art school, but that's what Gleeson said. Um, I don't think it was great misfortune. To flip the coin, I think Dobell's great fortune was to be born in a Newcastle and in a working class part of Newcastle where pretension was not tolerated and not accepted. And you got to see people for who they were. And if people were acting, to use a, a Dobell word that he liked to use to those who annoyed him, snobs, he would see straight through that. Mm. He became a great judge and almost like a, a surgeon with his brushes to be able to cut through that, to incise through that and to see people for who they were. So he had the great fortune to grow up in the Newcastle he did. It gave him the bedrock uh, to become the portraitist he would become. Yeah. Yeah, that would stay with him forever, for his yeah. whole life, wouldn't it? That that ability to sort of cut through class, you know. Yeah, and at times, even he admitted this at times, with some cruelty, um, particularly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in his time in London, the boy may have been removed from Newcastle, but Newcastle had not been removed from the boy, and he in his, some of his portrayals, such as the Duchess Disrobes and Mrs South Kensington, he was making a, a statement about class and uh, society and he was being disparaging in paint, really, when you look at those works, of those he considered being snobs or being pretentious. Yeah, exactly. Well, after he left school, um, what did he do? 
he left early. Uh, he was about 14 and he had a, a range of jobs, including one that he loved to tell uh, for the rest of his life, that he was a dog walloper, where his job was outside a drapery to stop the dogs urinating on the material, the cloth outside the shop. That was his, <laughs> his job. And maybe he learnt skills there that would come in handy with art critics later on. I don't know. <laughs> and so that was one of his jobs. But eventually his artistic skill was recognised. But bear in mind, this is a place where you don't become an artist, you don't become a musician. Even though he harboured dreams of becoming a musician and was pretty good on the piano, you'd never do that uh, professionally. His dreams with his music was not to be a concert pianist. It was maybe if I'm really lucky, I can become a salesman at a music shop in a Newcastle suburb. Yeah. So it was all about being practical. You may have these artistic skills, but you had to be practical in early 20th century Newcastle. And for him, that meant becoming an architect's draftsman. And there are still little landmarks around Newcastle that are reputedly an early William Dobell work. Oh, really? The War Memorial in the Junction, which is an inner city suburb in Newcastle. If you drive down a couple, uh, one of the main roads, you will see this memorial there from the First World War that is apparently a design of young William Dobell in his days as an architectural draftsman. But perhaps the one that would impact most on his life, and it certainly did... Uh, on his uh, father's as well, was the place he designed for the family at this little village called Wanji Wanji. Robert loved to get away from Newcastle. He loved to head out to the lake. Uh, lake Macquarie was an escape for people from Newcastle and from the Hunter Valley coal fields. And so for his dad, the young architectural draftsman uh, or the young architect uh, designed an escape, a bolt hole. At this point, young William was plotting his own escape out of Newcastle. So he was giving no thought to what he was creating here for his dad, for his dad's bolt hole by the water. Little did William Dobell know in his early 20s what he was designing was what would become his refuge, his refuge from the world, his bolt hole, two decades later. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And so... What uh, So there was a bit of a turning point. There was a, a pivotal moment for him when his employer died. Uh, what happened next? This was the moment that pushed William Dobell to change, to change the city in which he lived, to change his job and to change how he saw himself when the architect died and he was therefore out of a job, he, he thought, OK, I'll finally move to Sydney. Some of those who knew Dobell when he was young said if that did not happen, if Mr Porter had not died, Dobell would have probably stayed on in Newcastle and probably pursued that line of work and dreamt of being a, a sheet music salesman in Hamilton <laughs> or maybe a newspaper cartoonist, which was another ambition and dream of his, to be a newspaper cartoonist. Mm. He always curtailed his ambitions. He may have had enormous talent, but he always checked himself. So if you were going to pursue art, if you're really going to go out there, well, let's be sensible about it. I'll be a cartoonist or what would turn out to be ironic, a caricaturist. 
And so he thought, oh, I'll be a newspaper cartoonist maybe. But no, he, went, he made the move to Sydney though. He did make that move. Uh, and he got a job at Wunderlich, the um, uh, company that would, in the early 20th century, design a lot of the pressed metal ceilings. You know, mm. when you go into older homes and you go, wow, that's a beautiful ceiling. A lot of it comes from uh, uh, this Wunderlich factory. And he got involved in the design of uh, and illustration of the promotional catalogues and things like that. Oh, right. There. But importantly, what he also did was he enrolled at uh, Julian Ashton's Art School. And was that and and of course Julian Ashton Art, art School is a very traditional art school. We've talked about it on the podcast several times. Um, did he enjoy that experience? He loved it. Yeah, he did love it. Ashton, and he said this a lot to students. I think he said, uh, "I'm not teaching you how to draw. I'm teaching you how to see." Mm. So for William Dobell, this was the opening of his eyes, not just in a physical way, in an artistic way, but in a, a very deep way that uh, his eyes hadn't been opened in Newcastle. This is partly why he made the move, so that he could learn to see mm. in the broader sense. And what he saw more clearly than anything through this increasing commitment as an art student, while still working, what became very clear and in focus was, I actually may be able to become an artist it broadened his horizons mm. and it allowed him to focus on something that he couldn't have imagined for himself. And he also started meeting artists in Sydney, Exactly. He? Yeah, he did. And you hear different stories about how much he was engaged with or socially uh, reacting and interacting with other artists. Some said he was even then very shy and reserved and they didn't know much about him. Others said he would let his hair down at like artist balls and things like that and get dressed up as, you know, a baby or wear a toga or stuff <laughs> like that. It's hard to imagine Bill Dobell <laughs> dressed as a baby. but. And also tell me, where did he move to in Sydney? Where did he live? He moved around and um, and so he lived in various places just renting a room and, again, not living in with other artists, keeping himself separate he was always distant in that way. Um, not, not in London. When we get to London, he was far more involved with artists there and living with artists and having artists stay. Uh, but in Sydney, he's, he kept his distance. Yeah. And uh, as he always did, Dobell was a master at keeping his distance. Mm. Well, let's talk about London um, because... It, it, it's interesting that at that time, so we're talking about the 20s, mm. uh, 1920s, uh, there was this distinct impression that in order to make it as an artist in Australia, you really had to leave Australia. That's mm. the case, isn't it? So how did he manage to do that? Well, with this growing belief and self-belief of maybe, just maybe I can pursue art, he applied for the um, Society of Artists Travelling Scholarship. He applied in 1927. He missed out then. He was close, but he missed out. And he applied again, uh, submitting a work in 1929, and he won. And it was £250, which in 1929 was a lot of money. Yeah. And it did mean that he could further and in some ways follow in the path of those who he greatly admired and had learnt from, people uh, such as uh, Lambert. Mm. And he was a huge admirer of Lambert. Lambert, feeling uh, 
this need and this responsibility to help teach the next generation had come into the art school and had given lessons. And Dobell was a disciple of Lambert at this point. Mm. And George Lambert, of course, was a very traditional sort of painter, wasn't he? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But had gone over and done... Uh, and, done the continent and learnt from, uh, you know, in galleries and had brought all of that home, like the returning uh, prophet sort of thing, for these young people like <laughs> Dobell who would go, wow, yeah, one day I'd like to do that. So he went away very much influenced by those from whom he'd learnt here in Australia, but also keen to see for the first time, to stand before these works and to see in the flesh, so to speak, um, the, the creations of these artists that he'd heard so much about from the likes of George Lambert. Yeah, it must have been amazing to go, like, to the National Gallery or something like that in London. Which he yeah. did. He loved going there. Um, he, went to, he was enrolled in the Slade School, and that was an extraordinary experience for him uh, to have these teachers like Henry Tonks. Mm. And he was also taken on by Sir William Orpen. Orpen didn't teach him at the Slade, but it was arranged through the Slade for him to have lessons with Orpen. Orpen at that point was the preeminent society portraitist. If you could afford it, and if you, your station in life was high enough, you wanted an Orpen portrait. And the interesting thing about William Orpen was, not that Dobell could have foreseen this, Orpen was a salutary lesson a prophecy personified for where William Dobell was headed. The perils of becoming a much sought after, much coveted society portraitist, the dangers in being that, in being a portraitist that everyone wanted. Yeah. This was something Bill Dobell would learn. And uh, what happened to him? What With Sir William Orpen? Yeah. He struggled and uh, he died at the age of 52, a shattered man. And Henry Tonks, in fact wrote to his widow saying, it's a pity that artists come out into the limelight like that. Artists should stay in the garret. There should be that distance. Again, a lesson that Dobell would learn through bitter experience around the Archibald and what fame brought to William Dobell. So all these lessons were there in the life and the art of William Orpen. Not that they were the lessons that uh, William Dobell was in London to learn. He wanted to just learn from these guys who had been at the coalface of the greats. Mm. What was it about London that would make him move away from that uh, traditional classic painting? Yeah, it's a great question because it was all there for him. He was right in the, the heart of that if he wanted to continue pursuing that and uh, to become a really academic sort of painter. But after one year at the Slade School, and he did really well, he won a prize at uh, the Slade School. Uh, so he was one of their really good students. He went on a tour. Uh, he, he took himself off over to Europe. How many times he went to Europe in his decade away it's hard to tell. The story keeps changing. And because he wasn't a great man of words and of diaries, his, di his sketchbooks were in effect his diaries. It's hard to tell. But he at least went a couple of times to Europe. But the, this pivotal moment, this seminal moment, uh, not long after arriving in London, and he went travelling and got to stand before some of the works that he'd heard so much about. Rembrandt had a huge influence on him. 
and um, travelled down through the lowlands and he'd seen uh, how that environment had influenced uh, art history and the painters that he so admired. And uh, he ended up in Paris. He was feeling crook at the time, so he probably didn't have the, the best view of Paris or, or of Parisians. Uh, but it opened his eyes and he later said, uh, oh, he regretted, I wish I'd pursued the extreme. And he used the word extreme. He liked this word extreme. I wish I'd pursued the extreme a bit more that he'd seen in Paris. But as was so often in his life, he was uh, entranced by the extreme, but he was reticent to embrace it or to pursue it. Uh, nonetheless, it did influence him. And it, uh, he, when he came back across the channel, he brought that sum of influences with him that he'd had from his time in the Netherlands and, and, and France and Belgium travelling there. He particularly loved Bruges, the city of Bruges, and spent some time there, or Brugge. And by the time he got back to, across the channel, his view of how he wanted to work had changed. He went back to the Slade, albeit briefly, then left. For him, the great college, the great tutelage that he would have was right there before him, living in London. He could go to the galleries, but more importantly, he could go anywhere and he could observe the length, breadth and depth of humanity. And that is what he would sketch and pin onto the pages of his sketchbooks. And he wasn't terribly comfortable about sketching in public either. Never was. And he liked to do it surreptitiously. Or he would like to go to London Zoo and there the animals aren't going to look back at you when you're drawing them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but so he would, he would observe and just then sketch. Sometimes he'd just do a few lines and then he, when he got back to his little bedsit, he'd work that up into something more. And for many years to come, even after he'd moved back to Australia, those quickly rendered lines on paper would be a source of inspiration, of reference for portraits that he would do that we'd all come to know. So that was really important to him to be able to just quickly sketch and draw. He became, there was a, a, a term that was used of William Orpen, a deadly observer. And in some ways, Dobell was learning at that point how to become a deadly observer. He was learning not just to observe, but how to work his way into the soul of a person, to get below the skin, to create those works that somehow seem to resonate with character, not just appearance, that we know of uh, the great Dobell portraits. That's definitely right. And you know what is I find fascinating is that how he could do these sketches uh, and then work them up into fully formed paintings mm, mm. Um, through his memory as well, uh, which was such an amazing skill, I thought. I mean, and I think there was a there's a reference to a, a time when he was going to paint a singer, and he he hardly even sketched her. Oh yeah, that was his first Archibald um, entry in 1940, Dorothy Helmrich. Oh yeah, and he, she was getting worried. And this this is a story that's told over and again by Dobell's subjects. They're like. We had one quick session or maybe one conversation and then a, a sitting and I haven't heard from him. I wonder if he's dropped off. Maybe he's not wanting to paint me anymore. I wonder what's going on. And because he was very shy, 
often he's just listening and people are thinking this conversation's going nowhere. He, and he is brilliant with hands. If you look at Dobell, it's partly because he did love and studied Rembrandt and Rembrandt did a lot of hands. Yeah. Uh, but so did Dobell. And I, I wondered if it was because he was shy and rather than look people in the eyes, he'd look at their hands and the, you'd often look at a, the hands and there'd be so much character in those hands yeah. in his portraits. But it was always confusing to people and Dorothy Homerick was one thinking, oh my goodness, what's going on? And she invited him to a concert and then uh, she didn't hear any more and she thought, oh, well, it's obviously not happening. Well, it did happen. It was the entry from Dobell for the 1940 Archibald Prize. A friend of Helmrich went along and had a look at it and said, oh, you should sue him for libel. And uh, <laughs> she was then worried and then she went and thought, oh, my goodness, he's got me. He's got me as the singer. And he was most inspired when he was sitting in the audience watching her perform. Um, And that's what was his greatest reference point. And as was often said when people saw a Dobell portrait of themselves for the first time, oh, my goodness, he's got me. And got me doesn't necessarily mean perfect likeness, of course, but it's something emanating, radiating from within Mm. that they may well think has kept well hidden. And it's like, how did he know that? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's. I mean, I suppose in a way, the thing that he was very that he was criticised in the end with the Archibald Mm. is the thing that gave his portrait so much character, and that was slight exaggeration. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, maybe even in the features or in a pose or whatever, that has it just gives it that extra energy or life. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And he would bring in other ideas, like such as in London with. A painting such as The Duchess Disrobes, which in some ways is a social comment, where he is literally stripping the clothes off this uh, high-ranking woman, off a duchess, and what is left there is flesh, like all of us. He's making a statement there. There's no doubt about it. But Mm. what he's done is, I think, when you look at the sketchbooks from London, he's transposed the uh, sketches he did of Pelican's so he's made her like this, this bird and so he's transposed one idea to say something about this person or this type, he was fond of the word type, this type that he would see in London and who would clearly annoy him a bit or get under his own skin. Mm. Since they were getting under his skin, he got under theirs <laughs> via his paints, brushes and incredibly perceptive um, observations. Yeah, well, he just continued that disdain for the the moneyed class in a way, didn't he? He did, and he later admitted, and this was with the benefit, the uh, harsh benefit of the Archibald uh, experience. He said later, when asked later in life, he looked back and thought of Mrs South Kensington in particular, that was a bit cruel, Mm. and I probably did exaggerate it a bit. Mm. and I suppose so though, when you, when you think about it, though, Mrs. South Kensington would never have seen it. No, it was a stranger in the park or Precisely. something. Precisely. Again, it's women he observed, people he observed, yeah. just watching, being if not the deadly observer, then certainly the critical <laughs> one. And also, he would never have known he'd be famous, and everyone would be pouring over every painting he ever did. <laughs> That's the thing, Maria. He wanted his paintings to be seen. He wanted his art to be noticed. But the last thing he wanted was to be noticed. 
He sought anonymity. Mm. It was a driving force as to why he left Newcastle for Sydney and it was doubtlessly something he was looking forward to in moving to London. An even bigger city, greater humanity, and it meant he could just blend in and be more anonymous even than in Australia's biggest city. Yeah. Well, let's talk about his return to Australia, which was at the beginning of the war in 1939. So he'd been in London for 10 years. The best part of 10 years, yeah. And he returned to something that you, I think you recall, you, you termed the art wars. Uh, can you tell me a bit about what the art wars were? Well, there were these camps and factions. You, you had uh, from 1937 this, you know, the, uh, an academy, an Australian art academy, in effect. Uh, Menzies, the future prime minister, was a great champion of this, saying this is, you know, the sort of art that we need, this is uh, the level of intellect that a nation needs, and therefore this is the sort of um, way we need to see ourselves on our walls and in our galleries. And so, which of course was that more conservative art and there was um, the uh, Contemporary Art Society that, that rose and grew. And within the Contemporary Art Society, there were different camps of uh, what contemporary art meant. Uh, you had the Society of Artists. When Dobell came back, they all wanted a piece of him. They were all hoping he would join their camp. And so Dobell, for a time, tried to be, and did a pretty good job at, being all artists for all camps. <laughs> He was an everyman artist, an every camp artist. Um, he would uh, espouse the the traditions and uh, learning uh, that he had brought back from London uh, when he exhibited with the more conservative. He put works into Society of Artists uh, exhibitions. He uh, engaged with uh, Contemporary Art Society as well. And uh, so everyone thought Dobell's our man. <laughs> but Dobell was his own man. And part of, I guess, that not wanting to rock the boat, he was happy to be part of everyone's camp and at the same part of no one's. He was part of Dobell's camp. Well, that's right, because he was still a pretty solitary figure, wasn't he, really? Yeah, he moved to King's Cross um, and when he came back. King's Cross was probably the the place of the most open-minded, living in a fairly straightened and... um, uh, conservative society in 1939 and mm. would become more so in some respects and open up in other ways once the war uh, began in a few months after that. Um, but he lived a, not quite a monastic life, even though a newspaper reporter called it a monastic life at the time, a monastic life in King's Cross. And uh, But there he was engaging with uh, not only interesting characters because... It brought some of what he loved about London and the continent to Australia and it was the only place he could find it, but it also meant he could mix with other artists. Yeah, of course. And so then the war really starts in earnest Mm. and he becomes a camouflage artist. Indeed. The War Memorial with the official war art scheme, they had their eye on Dobell. They wanted Dobell to be an official war artist. And that speaks a lot to what they were seeking. They wanted those who tended towards realism, who were, uh, had that uh, almost academic training, that solid realism that uh, they were seeking early on. Mm. 
and would become a point of conjecture in the art wars as those who were the so-called modernists were saying, you guys are just choosing the same sort of artists the whole time. Open it up. Show some diversity. But at that point, Dobell was clearly seen as one of those solid, reliable uh, painters that isn't going to do anything crazy with his brushes in the field and do any of that uh, modernist rubbish. You know, this was going to be a true and realistic and real representation and reflection of uh, Australians at war. So he was right there. And um, for various reasons, he wasn't selected. And then he became a camouflage artist, along with a bunch of other artists who would become his friends, including Joshua Smith. Hmm. But such was Dobell's talent. Um, While he was a camouflage artist and worked alongside and lived in a tent with Joshua Smith and other artists for some time, the Allied Works Council made Dobell an official artist to portray the works that were going on on the home front, behind the scene for the war effort. And uh, he did that for about a year. And some extraordinary works came out of it, including some works that he um, he submitted for uh, the Archibald Prize. Yeah, well, let's jump forward to 1943 um, because that is, of course, the year that... um Dobell won the Archibald Prize. Uh, He had entered a few years... I think this is his fourth time that he'd entered. Fourth time lucky. Yeah. Or unlucky, as he may have seen (laughs) it. Tell me a bit about that painting that won and and the painting process and, and what happened. It was a painting born of friendship. It was a painting born of war and of conflict, but from camaraderie and mateship. Because Joshua Smith was someone who really looked up to William Dobell. And Joshua Smith would often say one of the reasons he uh, enrolled in the Julian Ashton Art School was because of his admiration for Dobell before he had ever met Dobell. When Dobell came back from overseas, uh, Smith was delighted to meet him and uh, they became friends. And Joshua Smith, like Dobell, became a member of the um, uh, Allied Works uh, Council or the division of it that uh, oversaw camouflage painting. And uh, they lived in a tent together, they worked alongside each other and they posed for each other. They pursued their art alongside each other and in front of each other and they would sketch each other. Mm, So they knew each other's style very well, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. And and probably helped develop each other's style. And the seeds of that portrait, therefore, were sown during those downtime hours when they were both uh, camouflage artists and sketching each other for want of anyone else to sit for them, for any other models. And that so began what would become uh, that contentious portrait. How much Joshua Smith was involved through the evolution of that painting uh, is something that is much debated and has been the source of much conjecture. Mm. Dobell said he involved Joshua Smith much more than Joshua Smith said he was involved. Mm. But he did say that at one point Dobell said to him, I'm going to exaggerate some stuff a bit to draw out who you are because what Dobell was setting out to do, as he would say in the subsequent court case, was not just to present the appearance of his friend but also to bring across the feeling of what he knew of his friend. He'd got to know this person 
and he wanted to share that knowledge of what this person was like. And it was a person he admired. He was a friend. He said he was dignified, uh, could be stubborn, but he admired Joshua Smith, and that's what he wanted to get across. Now, when he said he was going to pull out certain uh, details to exaggerate, for want of a better term, certain things, Joshua said, he said, it's your job, Bill. In other words, you do it. Yep. And that was... So I suppose that was Joshua Smith saying that Dobell, in a way, acknowledged that he was going to exaggerate and distort. And I guess it's also an acknowledgement that from one artist to the other, you understand that what you're doing is not creating a photograph. It is a work of art. It is a personal response to a person, a place, a moment. And Joshua Smith, uh, by virtue of saying, it's your job, Bill, understood that the relationship was not just between himself and the artist, but it was the artist's relationship with what he was creating. Exactly. And let's, talk, let's just briefly describe the painting for people who are, maybe can't get to their screen and bring it up and might not have ever seen the work before. Um, it was Joshua Smith seated with his arms uh, sort of rest, his elbows resting on the armrests over the chair and his hands crossed in front of him. Correct. And you would notice those hands. You cannot help but notice those hands. We were talking before about Dobell's attention to hands and Joshua Smith's portrait is certainly an example of that. But it wasn't so the hands that grabbed everyone, it was that face. Yep. And where people were going, oh my goodness, has he exaggerated this? Has he elongated this? Has he made this guy look this ugly? Or is this a representation? And so began the controversy. Exactly. Uh, and quite elongated arms and neck as well, I would say. Indeed. Which is quite striking when you first see it. And of course, it won. It did. Can you tell me a little bit about what the reaction was, say, the next day and, and Joshua Smith's reaction? Yeah, well, it, there was this culling down among of the finalists by the trustees until there were two left two portraits that the trustees were determining who was going to be the 1943 Archibald Prize winner. It was William Dobell's portrait with the artist and there was Joshua Smith's portrait that he'd done, uh, which was uh, Mary Gilmore. Yeah, the writer. Yeah. And the poet. And the vote was seven to three. And so Dobell won and that was duly reported and then the next day, on the Saturday from memory, I think it was, Maria, the, the public, the media got to see, could come in and be face-to-face -face with the winner and, as it turned out, the future of Australian art, where Australian art was heading. Some would look at it and think, wow, at last, the shackles of those moribund conservative portraits that have defined the Archibald to now have finally been cast off. Others thought they were literally looking at the ugly face of modern art and thought something wicked and horrible this way comes. Art as we know it, it is over in Australia if this is going to be the future. And everyone had an opinion, including... Joshua Smith and Joshua Smith's parents who were there. And the media made a beeline for the parents and said, what do you think? And the parents were apparently influenced by hearing some of the comments that were less than flattering and they were worried for their boy. 
Yes. And it sounds like that rubbed off onto Joshua Smith himself. Yeah, yeah. And he changed his view. He did. And those who knew both of them said that all the way along Joshua was happy with what was being produced with the representation. And Joshua became more and more perturbed and disturbed as this became not just the winning portrait but a point of conversation and contention that the Archibald Prize more than ever before was not just opening eyes and Dobell wanted to open eyes with his art. That's what he wanted. What it was doing was opening mouths and everybody, everybody had an opinion about this portrait Mm. and it became... Uh, newsprint copy day after day, bearing in mind we're talking about in the midst of war that Australians are talking about art and asking that question, is this really art? Is this a portrait? And so then artists were also asking it, including two of those who had entered and um, were unhappy with the result in Mary Edwards and Joseph Walensky. Yes. What did they then do? Well, they said a lot about how much they hated the painting. (laughs) Mary Edwards advised that no child or expectant mother should go to the gallery. (laughs) She said this was a Pearl Harbour attack on art, bearing in mind that the Pearl Harbour attack had only happened uh, uh, just over a month earlier. Oh, my goodness. So this was a pretty strong comment to make about a portrait Mm. in a country which had been drawn into a new front in the war against Japan and worried about... Um, um, where we were at. But nonetheless, she said this portrait was a Pearl Harbour attack on art. Um, Walensky was also highly critical, as were others, about this work. But more than just express their criticism, and in Mary Edwards' case, she'd been critical before of Archibald winners. She'd entered before and she'd been critical before, including she was critical of the first female winner of uh, the Archibald Prize, Nora Hyson's work in 1938. She wrote to Nora (laughs) (laughs) saying, you know, don't like your work. and (laughs) Well, not doing much for the sisterhood. Well, probably (laughs) warning that, you know, there was a shot across the bow of what was to come in after the 1943 Archibald Prize and Nora and Bill had talked about, Nora had talked to Bill about the blessings that come from being an Archibald Prize winner, but also the criticism and the scrutiny and inadvertently the enemies. Yes. And so here it was starting to play out in early 1944 at a time when Dobell had got what he wanted, what had frustrated him in his time at the end of London. No one's looking at my work. No one's buying my work. Well, they were all now looking at his work. In fact, a fellow artist and friend of Dobell's, Donald Friend, who was in the army, stationed in a camp in uh, the Hunter Valley, was stunned to walk into a pub in Maitland to find the topic of conversation was Dobell's art. (laughs) He couldn't believe it. The whole nation was talking. Everyone had an opinion. Everyone was looking at this work and everyone was saying, do you reckon that's a, a real fair dinkum portrait? Or do you reckon that's a caricature? And so that very question was leading not just to the court of public opinion, it was leading towards a court of law. That's right. And when you put it that way about how much uh, public uh, attention was being placed on it, you can understand the pain that Joshua Smith must have been going through because it was his face 
that people were talking about and saying how ugly it was or uh, is that distorted or is that real? And if it's not distorted, then it's very ugly. So I can imagine for him it must have been an extremely painful experience. Absolutely, and his parents. And uh, as part of Joshua's change of opinion and growing concern about this portrait and the implications of this portrait for himself and for his life, he told Bill, my parents and I want to come and see you. And as it was told, uh, the parents and uh, Joshua turned up early one morning to Dobell's King's Cross flat and it was an anguished, tearful conversation. Well, his father was quite distraught about it, wasn't he? Yeah, apparently there were a lot of tears. And to the extent that uh, Dobell said he had to hand over a towel and the towel was being used to, to, to wipe up the tears and... Um, they wanted to buy the painting. Dobell didn't want to sell it because his fear was they were going to destroy it. But, and this, again, Maria is a point of conjecture, and he said, he said, um, there was apparently an agreement that uh, it would not be shown anymore or it wouldn't be sold, or if it were to be sold, um, the Smiths would have first option on it whether that was the case or what the, the terms of that verbal agreement was during that anguished, tearful conversation, yeah, who knows. Mm. And that's something we can talk about a bit later as well. But um, So let's get back to the court case because mm. Mary Edwards and Joseph Walensky um, brought an action uh, against the trustees of the art gallery. The trustees and another who was Dobell. Yeah, so he was in the firing line directly as well. As he called himself, I'm a defendant. He was offended by the thought of being a defendant, as though by creating art, doing the very thing that he loved, that he had uh, committed a crime. Mm. He hated it, hated uh, that his art was being put into that position, into the dock, as it were, But what he really hated even more so was the scrutiny that he was receiving. Mm. And that was not only in the media, but it was also in the street, wasn't it? Everywhere. He was one of the most famous faces in the land at that time. He'd created one of the most famous faces in the land that everyone was talking about. But in doing so, he'd made his own face that he'd always wanted to be anonymous. He wanted to be faceless was suddenly one of the public faces in Australian life, not just artistic life, but in Australian life. Everybody knew who William Dobell was. And again, just like with his portrait, his creation, everyone had an opinion whether he'd done the right thing or not. Yeah. And he was also receiving, uh, you know, hate mail and that sort of thing, wasn't he? He developed apparently a habit he never got out of, a terror of opening his mail. Mm. And when he died... Someone who uh, I spoke to said that his sideboard in his house, he died alone, the sideboard was piled with mail, Mm. unopened mail. Yeah, it obviously was a very traumatic experience for him. It was a traumatic time for both Smith and Dobell and in some ways it was a traumatic time for Australian art because they became the people out the front for these various causes and camps and beliefs and ideologies and where people wanted and expected Australian art to go. Yeah. 
So it was an extraordinary time for, for so many, yeah, not just those two men. Yeah. And, the, and so the court case itself, it was packed every day. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a circus, really, wasn't it? It was. And, um, yeah, and everyone wanted to, waiting to see Exhibit D underneath the veil there, Exhibit D being the portrait. 153,000 had gone to the gallery, a, a phenomenal number in the midst of war, had gone to see that portrait while it hung in early 1944. But again, people wanted to see Exhibit D, plus the added drama now of this court case to determine whether Dobell should get this money, whether he had transgressed the terms of the will of Archibald in terms of what the Archibald uh, prize was to be about, had, what the, uh, the conditions of the painting or the portraiture were, were to be. Mm. Did he stick by it? Did he not? Mm. Was this a portrait? Was it a caricature? So these were questions that were to be decided in the court, but they were questions that deeply wounded William Dobell, that they were even being asked. Yeah. And he, he did quite well in the witness box, it looks like. He, he wasn't uh, intimidated, it doesn't sound like, from the comments, some of the comments that he made. Those who knew him and loved him said he was terrified and shattered by the whole ordeal and anticipating what was to come. But... In the reportage of it, he held his own. And he was holding his own against, and you being a, a former lawyer, would know the uh, formidable character that was Garfield Barwick. Mm. So Barwick was the one cross-examining William Dobell. So Barwick was in the corner of the plaintiffs. And Barwick was doing, in a legal way, what Dobell would do in an artistic way. He cut through and he broke down that portrait and the intent of the artist with that portrait, bit by bit by bit. And he kept asking Dobell at one point, going, the arms, objectively faithful? That was the term he kept using, objectively faithful? Mm. And Dobell was trying to make the point, you can't break a portrait down into bits like that. You've got to look at it as the whole. And any point where Barwick uh, called it a caricature... He would be corrected by Dobell and say, portrait. Well, sort of butting law against art. It was sort of insane. Which is what was at the core of uh, Dobell's offence and, and of so many others, that, uh, that art should not be subjected to this. Exactly. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think it was 12 days deliberation by the judge, I think. Uh, so that would have been an anxious time. But, uh, yeah, the trustees won and Dobell won. Got his prize money. And he got his prize money. But he lost so much in the process. Yeah. Um, he will always be noted as the winner of the 1943 Archibald Prize with perhaps the most famous portrait as a result of all the furor and controversy that surrounded it. But he lost in so many more fundamental ways. Well, it took a physical toll on him, didn't and it? And emotional. His whole life had been about painting, about working against his own timidity, his own lack of self-belief towards becoming an artist. And he'd succeeded. He'd proven himself wrong. His talent had outshone his own timidity. He'd become an artist. But his talent had not just outshone his timidity, it had pushed him into the spotlight, the very place he didn't want to be, where he did not want to be seen. So for his work to be pulled apart by brilliant minds like uh, Garfield Barwick and from the man and woman in the street hurt him mightily. 
but he was terrified of being put out there in the limelight and being famous. He couldn't, he couldn't countenance that. He never wanted that for himself. Yeah. And that, and that resulted in, um, in him retreating totally in the end. I mean, I think he had almost a nervous breakdown. He, did have, he, he said of himself that he did. He physically couldn't pick up a brush for a time. He developed this terrible skin condition, this dermatitis. And as he told a lady in Wanji who told me that he said the skin of his fingers would peel off like a glove. He couldn't bear to physically pick up a brush for a time. But emotionally, he could not really bear to pick up a brush. And while, of course, after being an Archibald Prize winner, people want you to paint your portrait. He had commissions, including one for a a, a fellow called Lord Wakehurst, who I think had been the governor and was returning to, to Britain. And the portrait was criticised by those who championed and loved Dobell as an artist, saying, look what he's doing, look how timid it is. It, it looked like he'd lost the will to be a portraitist. Mm. And what was being played out there in that portrait would really come to pass after he uh, left Sydney. He, he ran away, he was running away from the unflinching gaze of the public eye. He was running away from all the criticism. But above all, he was running away from his own celebrity. He was running away from William Dobell. And he was just seeking an escape. And where he sought escape was in his past. Wanji Wanji. He went to the place that he had designed for his father, for his father's escape. More than two decades earlier, his eldest sister Alice was living there. She was unmarried. He moved in with her. Alice nursed him. They would go down to the uh, lake and the lake, in a physical way, began to heal William Dobell because they would get um, buckets of salt water out of the lake and bring it up and pour it into a bath and go through the painful but therapeutic process of Dobell immersing himself in that to heal his skin condition. But interestingly, the lake began to heal him in ways other than physical as well. The, the ebb and flow, the gentle rhythm of life in Wanji Wanji began to heal William Dobell because he was living amid people who couldn't care less about art and cared even less about celebrity. They were mindful that a mad artist had moved in amid, among them. But that's all right, as long as he didn't cause any fuss, that's all right. And they came to realise this mad artist isn't a bad bloke. So they initially gave him space because they knew that's what he wanted. But over time, he would become a member of that community. He would become, to paraphrase one of his own portraits, a Wanji boy. Yeah. And he would, from then on, basically live between Sydney and Wanji. He did. He, more, as time went on, more in Wanji, but for many years he tried to balance that because he was not fully comfortable in either place. He found comfort in both, but, but he needed both places for different aspects of himself, which probably boils back to, not that I want to be a pop psychologist about a man I never met, um, but probably because he was never entirely comfortable with himself. And therefore he found comfort or he learned to move away from the discomfort that either place may have presented. Yeah. 
And that recovery would ultimately lead to another two Archibald wins. But before we get onto that, mm. I wanted to ask you what ever happened to the painting? Ah, that painting. For a time afterwards, it was in a storeroom at the art gallery and then Dobell took it back and stuck it behind a wardrobe in his King's Cross flat, out of sight. Couldn't get it out of mind, but he wanted it out of sight. And people would come to him and say, we'd like to buy it. No. He wanted nothing more to do with it. There may or may not have been that influence of that agreement with the Smiths that was uh, impacting on all of that. But eventually, at the end of the 40s, so a good about six years since, well, it had been more than five years since the court case and almost six years since that face that changed Australian art had been seen by eyes right around um, the city. He agreed to sell to a couple uh, in South Australia called the Haywoods, a very wealthy uh, South Australian couple who had a house in the Adelaide Hills called Carrick Hill and they were major collectors of art. And he agreed to sell, which caused more grievance with Smith, who claimed that this deal had yet again been broken by Dobell by virtue of selling it um, and not giving them the first option. By this time, the painting that had been born from friendship had meant a friendship had been destroyed and would never be repaired. To use Dobell's word, a beautiful friendship. Mm. It had been destroyed. But in 1958, the portrait that destroyed a friendship would itself be all but destroyed. A fire tore through Carrick Hill, just near the library, and they had an extraordinary collection of books. And the face that some had criticised as being an ugly portrayal melted and bubbled from the heat of the fire and was all but destroyed. The Haywoods asked Dobell to repair it, restore it. Dobell wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, he reportedly felt some relief when he heard the portrait had been burnt in the fire. Mm, I'm sure Joshua Smith felt the same. Indeed. And then the portrait was sent off to London to, be, uh, to a renowned conservator to be restored. So, that, so the Haywoods really wanted that painting they back. They loved that portrait. And this, in a house of extraordinary art, including art by artists who had influenced and taught Dobell, including Orpen, that was all there in this amazing house, Carrick Hill. And so they, they were also deeply hurt when this painting was all but destroyed. They sent it off to be restored. The painting was restored. But in the eyes of those who had lived with it, been hurt by it, it was restored to nothing like what it was, to the extent that Smith phoned Haywood and said, that's not a doorbell. Mm. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if it's more or less destroyed, you can't recreate something like that. Yeah, so, and eventually the Haywoods parted with it as well and uh, it went out of their lives as mm. well and out of Carrick Hill. It stayed in London for many years before it was brought back to Australia. So that was the fate of that 
most famous portrait. Unbelievable, isn't it? Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, getting back to Dobell, he did he. So his fortunes and success in the Archibald continued. And it came at a time when everyone thought he'd become a recluse and everyone thought he was a broken man and there was a headline at one point that said art tragedy and one of his sisters saw that headline outside a newsagent in Newcastle and she fainted because she feared something horrible had happened to her beloved brother. And the art tragedy was, here's this brilliant artist just sitting in this place no one had heard of, doing nothing. That was the art tragedy. Mm. However, the artist, as he sat there, slowly recovering, watching the ebb and flow of the lake, watching the moods of Mother Nature wash over the lake from the storms and the squalls to the beautiful stillness that it could bring and the way the people in Wanji, the fisher folk and those who had moved to there engaged with and reacted to that and engaged with mother nature's moods heading out on the water when it was beautiful and calm pulling their boats off the water when they could see a storm approaching he observed it and then he began sketching it and then more than sketching it he began painting it and this all became evident Uh, when the finalists and the winners of the 1948 Archibald Prize and the Wynn Prize were announced and put on display. The 48 Archibald Prize winner was Dobell with that beautiful, luscious portrait that I guess everyone would know of Margaret Ollie. Now, the relationship there was based around Sydney. This was part of Dobell's Sydney life that he had retained. He'd come down to a party and... The party they were about to go to, they asked um, if Margaret could dress up and make herself fancy. Now, these were tough times. It was hard to dress up and be fancy in post-war Australia. So a good friend of hers, a fellow artist, Fred Jessop, said, I'll help. And they spent an afternoon at, I think it was at the Drysdale's house, building or assembling this beautiful dress from army surplus stuff, such as uh, parachute silk. Wow. Cut up Fred Jessop's grandmother's wedding dress <laughs> and <laughs> concocted this incredible outfit and she made a sunflower hat as well and off to the party and she was the hit of the party and captured everyone's eyes, including William Dobell, who was at this party of artists. And on the way home, travelled home with her, he shyly asked her, may I paint your portrait? And she agreed. And so... Uh, began the journey to that extraordinary 1948 uh, Archibald Prize winning portrait. And that dress is in the painting. It is. Even though she didn't, I don't think she wore it at the sitting. She did not. And uh, it was purely from memory. Yes. There's an amazing study as well of Margaret naked as as well. And I asked (laughs) Margaret, I said, did you um, pose for William? No, I did not. (laughs) That was the artist's imagination. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, well, it's funny, you know, because even she felt affected by being in the limelight with that, with the win of that painting. She was about to go travelling, and she went with her mum to see it. But some elements of the press thought, "Oh, here we go. This might be a Joshua Smith mark too." And they, some members of the press went back to some of those who'd been highly critical of the Joshua Smith painting, including a doctor who'd been highly critical and said, 
at the time, it looked like a corpse, yeah. the Joshua Smith painting. <laughs> and so they went back to him and said, what do you think of this one? Said, well, it looks like this person has a kidney ailment. Oh. And they were able to get the critics. Oh, so about, they could roll them up a bit for a few headlines. New headlines <laughs> for the new painting. But the same old argument. What's Dobell created here? And, and bear in mind, Dobell's come out back into the public eye after having shunned it and, in, in effect, hidden himself away and recovering. So it must have been terrifying for Dobell. Yeah. Margaret, to her wonderful credit and, you know, just a wonderful human being as well as a beautiful artist, Margaret said she liked the portrait. But then some members of the press turned to her mother and said, what do you think? And she said, oh, I like it too. That's a good portrait. <laughs> and so killed any sense yes. of controversy. And she loved that portrait. I, I, the last time I spoke to Margaret, um, when I was researching the book, uh, she talked very fondly about it. And I had the great honour in uh, 2006, I think it was, to stand before that portrait with Clive James, who was a great friend of Margaret's. And he said, as he looked at it, that's the real Margaret. So once again, Dobell got his subject. So controversy averted, but an extraordinary portrait in the history of the Archibald is there for all to see. Yeah, but it's a great painting, that it, one, in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's beautiful that it then is bookended by Ben Quilty's yeah, that's portrait right. of Margaret. Um, but that year... Dobell, in effect, did two portraits. He won both the Archibald Prize and the Wynn Prize for landscape painting. And the landscape painting, I would argue, is also a portrait. It's a self-portrait. Because that painting, that landscape, is called Storm Approaching Wanji. And it shows um, a storm, a tempest rolling over the hills, what's called the Butterba Hills, down onto Wanji Bay, and it shows two uh, male figures desperately trying to drag a boat in before the squall arrives, and uh, a woman carrying the oars. They're trying to get away from the storm. To me, that landscape is a self-portrait as well because William Dobell had been the storm approaching Wanji. He was this tempest of swirled-up emotions, of self-doubt that was crushing him, this thunderous voice of, I won't go through this again. And yet the magic of Wanji, the lulling, calming effect of Wanji meant that the storm abated somewhat as uh, those couple of years passed. So every time I see the storm approaching Wanji, I can see somewhere that I've come to know and he got the feeling of that place, just like people say of his portraits. He got it. He got Wanji. He got it in a way that goes beyond appearance. But to me, it's also a statement of what Wanji did for him. It lulled the storm that was ripping him apart. Mm. And his relationship with those people in Wanji was to become just closer and closer and last for the rest of his life. They became part of his daily ritual, his routine. They became his friends. They became his confidants. They became his protectors. Wanji Wanji was and still is a small place. You have to want to go there. You don't drive through Wanji Wanji. It exists on a peninsula. And as that 
beautiful place name says in one translation, it means the place of much water. So it's all but surrounded by water. It's all but an island, in fact. There's this little area called the Narrows. You cross over to go into the main part of Wanji-Wanji. If water were to rise a bit and cover that, Wanji-Wanji would be an island, which probably would have suited Bill Day Bell down to earth. He would have loved that. <laughs> but people would come into uh, Wanji-Wanji in the 1950s and 60s looking for Bill Day Bell. He became a tourist attraction. And... There was once a, a newspaper reporter who turned up, or a magazine reporter, and went to a local shop in this small community and said, where could I find William Dobell? And the proprietor went, William Dobell, don't know him, don't, wouldn't know where he lived, which said a lot about how the town protected yes. him. And the blokes at the pub where he would go every afternoon at 4pm because they would knock off, he would knock off, they'd meet for a couple of beers at the pub. And if there were intruders, as it were, interlopers, media, they would literally close in around him to protect him. Ah, uh, so they, they knew how he felt. Absolutely. looking after him. Yeah, they knew that he was a fragile soul, but more importantly, they knew he was a good bloke. Yeah. He was one of them. Yeah. And if you were one of them... Well, we'll take care of you. Yeah. Now, today, an artist's um, sexuality is almost an irrelevance. Anyone's. Yeah. Luckily, we're living in an age where uh, those are the old, bad old days. But at the time that he was living in the heyday, it was a criminal offence. Homosexual act was a criminal offence. And there's been a lot of conjecture about that side of his life. Did you find there were all were different views as to... Utterly, utterly different views, even in Wanji itself. Utterly, if he, whatever his sexuality, he was utterly discreet about it. Hmm. And he would throw people off the scent, particularly prying reporters who would ask about it. And people constantly asked and there, were, there was innuendo and um, all sorts of ways and means that people were trying to find out. I suppose because he lived alone his, his whole life and lived with his sister. The... Exactly. And he would say that he almost got engaged a couple of times, that he escaped marriage. And at one point he was asked, uh, well, do you think you'll ever get married? And his reply was, no, I think it's best that I lead a lonely life, mm. which is a tragic thing to say, a sad mm. thing, that he would lead a lonely life. And in many ways, he did lead a lonely life. He had his community in Wanji and they took care of him and they were friends and they loved him. Um, but he did lead a, a lonely life and he had a lonely death. He died alone on his kitchen floor. Um, so that whole question of his sexuality could well have been this driving force for his terror about being in the limelight. Yeah. And he certainly was um, wholly accepted in the art world. He had a huge retrospective towards the end of his life in 1964, which was attended by over 150,000 people, I think. Yeah, it was huge. Uh, yeah, amazing, over 200 works. And the catalogue, thousands and thousands printed, sold out. Yes, he was huge. It was absolutely huge. So huge that uh, some people were doing uh, copies of Dobell's. Yes, Dobell really left his mark on the Australian art world. He did. 
And it would be interesting to know what he thought and how he thought his mark has been left. I think William Dobell, I'm biased because I spent so much time with this man in words, so I, I think he's extraordinary. But William Dobell is one of our greatest ever portraitists. The way he could use a brush like a scalpel to make the most gentle but deep incision to get into the soul of a person, to capture a person, is just extraordinary. What he did in London in looking at the high and mighty through to those who were just scrabbling out in a hard existence is a pattern he took through life. So it's interesting that he'd often step back to be the observer because he clearly loved humanity. He loved being part of a community and that was born out in Wanji Wanji when he went there to escape, to get away. But what he found was a community. And at the end, he was a Wanji boy. He probably never quite got to that destination of self-knowledge and utter self-contentment. But he had become somebody who knew he had a place in a community and for all time, by virtue of the extraordinary work he created, he would always have a place in Australian art. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me this wonderful story about Dovell's life, and I highly recommend everyone go out and buy a copy. Maria, thank you. It's been wonderful yarning with you. What a great person and beautiful writer. It was such a pleasure spending the afternoon chatting with Scott about Dobell. And of course, you can easily get your hands on the book. I think even if you just Google Bill, the life of William Dobell, you know, you'll have lots of options to get your hands on a copy. Just to let you know also, uh, for those of you on Instagram, and it seems like a lot of my followers are on Instagram, uh, I'm going to be doing a live Instagram on the 25th of September for the announcement of the Archibald Wynn and Sulman Prizes. So you might as well tune in to me because you're going to get it live uh, when it happens. And I'll be also interviewing the winners, hopefully. And I'll be getting videos of those interviews to you as well. And also, if you haven't seen them already, to get you in the Archie season vibe, I made a couple of videos at the Art Gallery of New South Wales when artists were entering their works um, for those prizes. And the first is a video with head packer Brett Cuthbertson, who was such a lot of fun. And go and have a look at that on my YouTube channel, which is you just go to YouTube and search Talking With Painters. And um, also, I caught up with seven artists who are entering their works for those prizes and that was a lot of fun too you know speaking to people at that moment when they're handing in their works it's all very exciting so um, that's also on the YouTube channel and you, you know you can subscribe to my YouTube channel for free while you're there um, as you can subscribe for free to the podcast um, however you're listening to the podcast Thanks to everyone who's also been rating and reviewing. I've noticed the reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really, you know, it's very heartwarming to see and I really appreciate it. So thanks for that. And thanks for listening today. And I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Even though he, he hated attention such as the media, he would be kind to people who were interested in him. So I think Jeffrey Smart turned up once at his home at his home. Yeah, yeah. And Jeffrey was stunned to see the people outside. <laughs> they were in their cars, weren't they? Just looking yeah, at looking the house. In, looking in at him. And <laughs> Jeffrey thought that was extraordinary. 
And at that point, Daybell confided in him and said, you can't tell anyone, but I've been given a commission to go to Ethiopia to paint the emperor. You can't tell a soul, though. And he went, well, no, no, your secret's safe with me. And they went down to the pub and walked in and one of the punters, one of the drinkers said, hey, Bill, when are you going off to paint that Ethiopian bloke? <laughs> and Jeffrey said, I thought it was meant to be a secret. And he went, oh, the secret's safe here. Yeah. So he felt totally safe to, to tell them all his secrets. Yeah. 